Hello, and welcome to the Maine Question podcast from the University of Maine. I'm Ron Luznet. So how long has it been since you sat in a physics class? And what, if anything, do you remember learning about physics? Well, for me, it was junior year in high school, and I do remember a few things. I remember force equals mass times acceleration, or F equals MA. I also remember the force of gravity. Things you drop accelerate at 27 feet per second per second, so every second it speeds up 27 feet per second, I think. Anyway, that's about all that has stuck with me. I don't remember anything about physics having the potential to help in the fight against infectious disease, but that is exactly what Sam Hess, a professor of physics at UMaine, is doing with his team and a breakthrough advance in microscopes that he has developed. Part of what we do is to use light microscopes to study viruses. And physics has allowed us to invent some new kinds of microscopes that can do really amazing things. In this episode, Sam tells us about his high-resolution microscope and how it's being used in the battle against the flu virus and COVID-19. We will definitely not take the time to explain how this microscope works here. We'll leave that to the expert in just a few minutes. But with this new high-tech tool, Sam and his students can look at the actual structure of the flu or COVID virus, and they may be able to find some weaknesses that can be exploited and lead to new drugs and treatments for these devastating diseases. Using physics to fight pandemic diseases, a promising new way to tackle one of the biggest challenges of our time. Sam, thank you so much for joining us. We appreciate you taking the time. Oh, it's my pleasure. Well, a lot of us, it's been a long time since we sat in a physics class. I remember vaguely dealing with uh, gravity and momentum and forces. Maybe, maybe you, could, uh, you could tell me if I still remember anything here. I remember F equals MA. That's absolutely still valid. Good memory. Okay, and P equals MV. Uh, momentum equals mass times velocity. Is that right? Good. Okay. Those are really very useful still. All right. Well, that's good. So that's what I remember from physics. Now, you're a physics professor, but you're working with the flu and COVID. Can you help us understand how those fields collide? That's a great question. I mean, physics connects to so many things in the world. Uh, talks about how things move. You were mentioning P equals MV, about how uh, things move around and have momentum and interact with each other. And also, importantly, how things interact with light. And uh, part of what we do is to use light microscopes to study viruses and physics has allowed us to invent some new kinds of microscopes that can do really amazing things. I was working on influenza for about 20 years now. Uh, and then when the pandemic, the coronavirus pandemic started, I realized we'd probably have to find some new ways to fight the new virus. And there were some similarities and differences that I noticed between the SARS coronavirus and the influenza virus. And so I thought of using our uh, molecular microscopes to look at similarities and differences between those two. So that's kind of how I got interested in it. To me, a microscope is essentially, it's a, a big old magnifying glass, those lenses and glass. You built a high resolution microscope. How does the one you built work and what can it do that maybe other more traditional microscopes can't? Absolutely. A microscope is designed to make smaller objects look bigger and light microscopes do this quite well up to a point, but for really small things, they're limited by a process called diffraction. Diffraction uh, comes from the wave-like nature of light, 
And normally diffraction prevents us from seeing things smaller than about 200 nanometers using a light microscope. So to get around this limit, we invented a microscope method called FPOM, which breaks the diffraction limit, meaning it gets us around that limit and allows us to see much finer details with our microscopes, even in living systems. And it's one of four techniques that were published in the mid-2000s that were able to achieve this. And this gets us uh, the capability to image things as small as even a single molecule. In fact, we routinely image individual fluorescent molecules to make a map of how a biological structure looks. Now, you have to remind us, what, what is a nanometer? How small is that? A nanometer is a billionth of a meter. I think a common scale for microscope things is that a human hair is about 100 micrometers and a nanometer would be 100,000 times smaller than that. It's more or less the size of a carbon-carbon bond or a small piece of a protein that's on that scale of like a single molecule or even part of a single molecule. Does your microscope, can you actually look into it and see what you're examining or does it put it together in some other way that is not visual, I guess? It's amazing, but you can look through the microscope eyepieces and you can see the single molecules blinking in front of your eyes, with your own eyes, which is it's really cool. What we actually acquire with the microscope is a movie of those flashes of light that occur from different parts of the sample. And then we use a computer algorithm to look at those images and find where each flash came from. Once we've found, and that's called localization, when we found all those locations of the molecules, then we plot them all together and make a final image out of it. So there's some of each. You can look through and see what you're getting, but you can also have to do some analysis to get the final image. And you get many images to create a composite? Is that sort of how it works as well? Exactly. We're taking many, many frames, 10,000 frames, 20,000 frames from a movie of a single cell and or a single area of something. And then we're making a composite out of all of the locations of the molecules within that big stack of frames. And now we can even do this where we move the area that we're looking at over and sort of tile it to do uh, multiple regions to make an image of something that's too big to image all at once. So it goes without saying, you're crunching a lot of data, a lot of numbers. Yes, many hard drives have been filled. <laughs> I bet, I bet. So you're looking at certainly two of the major issues that we're dealing with in our, in our world these days, flu and COVID. Talk to me about how you decided to dig into this work. Why is this important to you? Why spend your time on this as opposed to something else other than the obvious that, you know, we need all hands on deck to deal with some of these issues? Obviously, the, the urgency is there. We have these two viruses that are causing a lot of trouble. The coronavirus right now is, you know, causing the most trouble. There's great vaccines available to, to protect us. Uh, but the viruses also mutate with time. And so we're hoping we can have some kind of a backup, right? If, if you're susceptible to a breakthrough infection, breakthrough infections occur sometimes, or if you're not vaccinated, you know, there's a chance you could get sick. And 
we want to have something to protect us even if infections happen. So we've been looking at two of the most important proteins involved in the infection process, the spike proteins. Uh, the spike protein from the influenza virus is called hemagglutinin, or HA, and the spike protein from the coronavirus is called S. And those spike proteins basically stick out from the surface of the virus, and they are allowing the virus to stick inside of our respiratory tract, and that's called binding. And they also allow the virus to enter through a process called membrane fusion. And uh, I had been working on the influenza spike protein for quite some time, and the microscopes we have were really helpful for that. So again, when the pandemic started, it seemed like maybe we could use this technology that was working against flu to also fight the coronavirus. When a virus mutates, obviously that definition of that is it's changing. It's, it's turning into something else that it wasn't. So are you basically looking at the parts of the virus that don't change, which are, are some of these spike proteins that, that stay constant, essentially? Yeah, good question. I mean, parts of those spike proteins do change. They mutate um, over time fairly rapidly. And that's one reason we have to revise the, the influenza vaccine each year, because the ectodomain, the part that sticks out from the virus, is mutating. And then that can interfere with the function of the immune system to recognize that structure as dangerous and attack it. However, there's a portion of the spike proteins that does not change very quickly. And we are, that is what we're going after. The tail in, is what it's called, and it sticks inside of the virus rather than outside. Since the immune system recognizes the outside part, the virus is gaining benefit from changing its outside parts of the spike protein. But there's no benefit to it changing the, the tail, which sticks inside and isn't accessible to the immune system. So that part seems to be quite invariant. Um, we, we also noticed that when we express one of these spike proteins in a cell, not the full virus, but just the spike, that there were some interactions between the tail and some of the host cell components. And so then we started thinking about how could we disrupt that interaction and that could interfere with the function of the spike protein and that could then block the ability of the virus to bind and enter. So looking at that interaction and trying to figure out are there drugs that could break that up that's really been a thrust of our research for a few years. We love analogies around these parts. And I, it, essentially, the spike protein is sort of the key that unlocks the door to let the virus in and, and do its damage, right? Yes, yes. It's, it's, it's got two really important jobs as far as starting an infection. The binding, where the spike protein recognizes something on the surface of a target cell, binds to that target... And then through a series of events, the host cell is fooled into bringing that virus in. But that step isn't enough to cause an infection by itself because it, the cell brings it into a compartment, a vesicle, which is surrounded by a membrane, still protecting the cell from the virus. The second step, which is called membrane fusion, is where that spike protein opens a hole between its own membrane and the host cell. And that's what allows 
the genetic material of the virus to enter the cell, and then that leads to an infection. That um, membrane fusion process depends very much on getting clusters of the spike protein. So for influenza, you've got to have a certain number of them close together to work together in order to get that hole in the membrane to open up. And so we've been studying that process of how the clusters form, and again, looking at how the host cell might play a role in generating those clusters and how we could disrupt that. So if you find what you're looking for, a, a spike protein that doesn't change much and that you can sort of attack this problem, how, how does that get developed and become a potential solution or a potential way to, to battle this virus? If we're able to find some type of a drug that disrupts the interaction, obviously we can't just start taking that immediately, right? But one of, the, one of my collaborators works on toxicology and let's suppose we find a new class of drugs that uh, blocks this interaction between the spike protein and the host cell and disrupts those clusters of the spike proteins and stops the virus from entering. It, this could be discovered in a dish with cells and we might test some similar compounds to see if they also work. And the steps toward making this available for people would then involve getting that work published, showing that this is able to work in a wide variety of situations, um, that it's not too toxic to the cells. One of the ways we can test toxicity is with an animal that people use at the university called the zebrafish, which is a small fish that has some uh, ability to model human disease and is also a great way to test whether uh, drugs work in a living organism. And we're actually able to see inside of these zebrafish with our microscopes while the zebrafish is alive. So uh, that's a very useful way to test this kind of stuff. So then we would try to publish that work showing this class of drugs seems to be effective and it's working in animals and then the hope would be then that further work would test whether it's safe for people to use and how effective it is and could eventually be on the shelf as an option to protect people if they did get sick. So this would be a drug to treat the disease as opposed to a vaccine which boosts the immune system and, and lets the person fight it off, essentially. Exactly. Exactly. I mean, I just think that the way viruses are mutating and the way you know, sometimes you get breakthrough infections, exactly. having a backup. Exactly. I mean, I just think that help when infection does occur, as hard as we try to stop them from occurring, having something to help just in case is a, is a real urgent need right now. It seems like a lot of different disciplines are coming together here. Your background is physics, but there's biology, there's chemistry, there's medicine, all, all those disciplines involved here. Is this something we're going to see more of, this sort of merging of different disciplines to attack these complex problems? Absolutely. Multi multidisciplinary research is just crucial for attacking, tackling these very complex mechanisms of infection. These viruses are quite sneaky. They have redundant mechanisms. You figure out a way to break something and stop it in one way, and it adapts to sneak around and infect in a different way. And so, and they're constantly changing. So we've got a pull from physics and chemistry, biology, computer science, engineering, and, and clearly virology um, 
to to make progress in this kind of a project. Uh, and I have to say, I'm very lucky to have a great team of people that I can work with at UMaine and in virology and chemistry and engineering and several at NIH as well in computer science and, and biophysics and virology. So it's, uh, it's crucial because you, you, you don't, we don't all think in the same ways and we might, as a, I might as a physicist think about attacking the problem in a certain way and on the other hand, a virologist would say, well, you really need to try this and control for this possibility. And we've also started doing uh, modeling of molecules using computers. And that's something that's happened since the start of the pandemic for us. Um, and we have a collaborator who I've never met in person, but we've been working with him successfully for over a year uh, in a totally new direction that's now giving us insights uh, at even smaller length scales that our microscope can reach. So having this uh, great team has been incredibly helpful. We've spoken with Melissa McGinnis before, who I know you know. She's a virologist. And the one thing she told us about viruses, I mean, maybe this is a misconception that's out there in the public, but a virus is not a living thing, correct? It's just basically a vessel for its DNA or to replicate, right? It's not a like a bacteria, right? It's correct. It's uh, basically some genetic material and wrapped in either proteins or membranes or both and in this little package. And it's just uh, kind of unlocking all of the capabilities, hijacking all the capabilities of the host cell to make more copies of itself. And, you know, it's just amazing how much trouble a 100 nanometer sphere with a little genetic material in it, how much trouble that can cause in, on this whole planet. How many students do you have involved? And I imagine a lot of students in this field are, are drawn to this work because it is so crucial and, and so much work needs to be done to, to, to battle this. I currently have uh, four graduate students. Um, I've, had, I, I, I've had three former students graduate quite recently. Many of them have really taken this fight against the virus to heart. They've had family members be affected. They've had loss, they've had their own lives disrupted, and uh, I, I, I've been very impressed with how my own students coming from physics background have adapted to learn all this biology they need to learn to be able to do the work we do, uh, how hard they've worked through all the changes and disruptions, and I'm very lucky to have the students that I have. So this microscope, is this something that you created from scratch, or is this building on some other concepts that, uh, that are out there? Is this a new breakthrough in microscope technology, basically? This invention was a breakthrough uh, in 2005, uh, published in 2006. It's a funny story. I was trying to sleep one night. There was a raging party next door to me. I had... Uh, my earplugs in and my pillows over my ears and the air conditioner turned up and I just could not sleep. And while I was lying there, it occurred to me that there might be a way to use almost like programming of the molecules to get around this diffraction limit. I'd been talking with colleagues about how we could break it and how we could use it to look at influenza. And then this idea came into my head for a way to do it. 
um, which I, I thought, you know, it's kind of the middle of the night. Maybe it's one of these things that you're going to laugh at in the morning. But I went downstairs and wrote it down and uh, went back, finally did get to sleep, came down in the morning and looked at it and I couldn't find any problem with it. So then I thought, surely this has been done. And it's taking a normal fluorescence microscope, but it's changing the kinds of labels that we use, the kinds of molecules we use to visualize what's there. And I thought, surely somebody has done this before or there's some mistake. Um, so then I went in to campus and talked to some colleagues and I said, please just save me the embarrassment. Tell me what's wrong with it or tell me who's done it. And nobody could do that. So then I started to think, hmm, maybe I better get a move on and, and try this out. So I got the, you know, started ordering things and got the pieces together. But really what's, What's different is the markers you're using, the, the labels that you're using to attach to the molecules and that they are not all visible at the same time. They're only visible in small numbers at a time. You're using lasers to control how many are visible and to look at the ones that are visible. And then you're using a very sensitive camera to map those very faint flashes of light. But it's using a conventional microscope. And in a way, it's kind of amazing that this didn't get invented 20 years ago because the technology to do it was there. It was just a matter of thinking of this weird way of approaching it. And that allowed us to start doing new things. Well, maybe you should move back into that apartment. It might, might spark some other ideas, right? So using this approach, using this microscope, this tool, what... What other kinds of issues do you want to explore? Do you think it'll be a, a key to battling other diseases <laughs> or other problems? Yeah, that's, that's really a, a great question. We are working on some other health problems. I have a collaborator who's looking at muscular dystrophy together with us, and we've also been looking at toxicology of compounds that are used in everyday products. Those sometimes affect the mitochondria, which are the energy producers of the cells. As far as the whole field goes, I think there are probably thousands of different biological applications happening now. A Nobel Prize was awarded in 2014 relating to this invention and the other groups that invented similar methods. And that's led to an explosion of activity in this area. It's a great thing to see new insights and progress on health problems happening because of this technology. So what's next? What do you think we'll see in five to 10 years? Is a, a bigger, more powerful microscope on the horizon? You can't predict the future, obviously, but some, some drug might come, be the result of this that really is effective against COVID or, or, or other diseases? You're right, Ron. It is hard to predict the future, but I think there's many reasons to be hopeful. Uh, I think the number of people working in this area and, and getting, you know, I mean, it's giving us maybe a factor of 20 better detail than we could have seen before. There have been discoveries already as a result. I kind of see this going towards smaller and smaller link scales, like better and better resolution. And, and with all these people working in the area, things have been Im improving. I think it's possible we'll get to the place where we can look inside molecules, not just where they are located, but actually how the different parts are moving. So that could lead to some great insights. 
And I mentioned the idea of using a computer to simulate the structure of the molecule. And there's, there's great potential for those two things to tie together, where the simulation can look at certain details that we might not be able to reach directly with a microscope, but that we can test with the microscope. And so I think those are growing together like you know trees that were planted separately, but their branches are getting more intertwined. And I think that's going to continue in the future. I've had this philosophy of going after a biological question and trying to invent the technology that I need to answer that question. And, and sometimes that works out and we get an answer. And then that answer leads to new biological questions, which then leads to new needs. And so I've been trying to keep the technology and the biology walking together and helping each other. And so I think you know, that's something I'm going to continue to do. I think other labs are doing that too. And finally, I would say, as we build on the technology we have, automating that te technology has, has become more and more important. And that's something we've been working very actively on to make it so that our microscope can drive itself and recognize from images whether this is something interesting or not and take more data and, and allow us that, that allows us to do things that are even more complex, but still using the same size team. And so in the long run, I'm, I, I am quite hopeful that we're going to be able to find some drugs, find some treatments, and maybe even find some cures for these infectious diseases that are causing us trouble right now. I know I speak for many when, uh, when I say we, we wish you uh, much success in the future, and uh, we thank you so much for uh, sharing your story with us. Thank you very much. It's been my pleasure, and hope we can talk again soon. Thanks for joining us. We welcome your comments and questions. Send them along to mainquestion at maine.edu. All our episodes can be found in a number of spots, Apple and Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, and SoundCloud, as well as on UMaine's YouTube channel and Facebook page. This is Ron Lisnett. We'll catch you next time on The Main Question.